Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, January 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A high-profile Harvard chemist was arrested and charged with lying about receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars from a Chinese government program. We'll break down this crazy story. The coronavirus outbreak keeps spreading and getting more serious. Stats' Helen Branswell will walk us through the most important updates of the past week. The first real test of the 2020 Democratic primary is next week, when Democrats in Iowa will gather for their caucuses. Stats' Lev Fasher, who flew to Iowa last weekend, will help us break down the state of the race and what it means for the drug industry. And finally, there's a movie getting made about reporting that happened at Stat. We'll bring you all the details about the opioid crisis film that's in the works in Hollywood. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. First up, we're going to talk about why you shouldn't lie when you're being questioned by the feds. Federal investigators at the Lexington home of 60-year-old Dr. Charles Lieber today, moments after his arrest at his Harvard office. The complaint alleges that Dr. Lieber signed a contract with the Chinese University in Wuhan and was paid up to $50,000 per month, plus up to $158,000 in living expenses. The chair of Harvard... Right, so where to even begin with this story? Maybe the most natural thing is to start with some background on Charles Lieber. He's a decorated academic, a leading nanoelectronics researcher, and the chair of Harvard's Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology. He's the kind of academic with a very long list of accolades and honors and publications on his biography. Earlier this week, however, his biography took an unexpected turn when he was arrested and charged with lying to federal authorities about his ties to a Chinese government program. The complaint details some pretty wild allegations, and it quotes extensively from emails to back them up. So Lieber was part of China's Thousand Talents program, which recruits both Chinese-born and foreign scientists trained overseas to come back to China. So he's accused of attempting to conceal payments that he was getting through the program. A top Chinese university paid Lieber $50,000 per month, living expenses of the equivalent of $158,000, and also awarded him more than $1.5 million to establish a research lab at the Chinese university. So the craziest part about all of this is how Lieber was apparently getting paid. The emails quoted in the complaint indicate that he was getting hundreds of thousands of dollars split between a Chinese bank account and in cash. Meanwhile, Harvard was none the wiser, nor were the U.S. funding agencies, including the NIH, that were funding Lieber's research in his Harvard lab. So what's the context of Lieber's arrest? Why were authorities looking into him in the first place? So this week's news is really an escalation of a crackdown by U.S. authorities on what they perceive as a campaign to steal ideas that were born in American labs. The suspicion and the reason that U.S. authorities are are looking into this is that they're worried that scientists that are part of this program 
are stealing American innovation on behalf of the Chinese government, and that that poses a threat to America's technological and scientific superiority, as well as potentially its national security. Uh, so this investigation has led dozens of U.S. institutions, uh, medical centers and, and hospitals, as well as universities to investigate their own scientists. It's also led to scientists and executives being dismissed or resigning at places like MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and, and Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. But I think Lieber's case is the highest profile so far. So, Rebecca, who exactly is being targeted here? So when these investigations started, there was a lot of concern and and frankly, not unreasonable concern that this all had kind of an icky undercurrent of being kind of racist because it was basically targeting and, and leading to the resignations and firings of Chinese born scientists working in U.S. labs. Recently, though, I think these probes have started ensnaring white guys, too. Uh, So several executives at Moffitt Cancer Center uh, were forced to resign. And Lieber, who is not believed to be Chinese or have any Chinese ancestry, is, of course, you know, kind of the, the highest profile target to date. So it's interesting to kind of see this shift from just people born in China to Uh, Americans as well. So as you mentioned, the whole underpinning of these investigations was was to protect intellectual property and national security and etc. Is Lieber being accused of any misdeeds in that world? So that's important. He is not. This is a case around money and, and fraud and lying. You know, crucially, he's not being accused of espionage or stealing any IP. And, and so I think that's important, you know, going forward what the government's claims are against him. I think that'll probably be pretty crucial to his uh, legal defense. And I think it's interesting the way that they brought him in is through kind of this technical money thing, which is is bad, but it's different than the investigation that, that spurred his arrest in the first place. I think it's also what's most amazing about this whole story is that, again, you know, Lieber's not being accused of being a spy for China. He's accused of getting a lot of money from China and then not reporting it to the feds. And when they ask him about it, he basically lied, you know, allegedly lied to them. And I think that's, you know, so it's essentially kind of a case about greed. And as we said at the top about, you know, what happens when you allegedly lie to the FBI or the feds when they ask you questions. And that for someone like Lieber, for this to happen to him, it's both surprising and not surprising because how many times have we seen these kinds of things happen? So now that we have some of the facts of this case uh, out in public, should other scientists who work closely with overseas universities be worried? So yes, if you're getting paid by these overseas universities with paper bags stacked with $100 bills and you haven't told your funding agencies or your American university about it. If you are checking the boxes, though, and in reporting things properly, this is legal. So I think it is the lying and concealing that's the problem here. So I'm not convinced that we are going to see a crackdown on every single scientist that has a relationship with an overseas university. The outbreak of the coronavirus through China and the rest of the world is a growing public health crisis. We're joined again by our stat colleague, Helen Branswell, for an update and some perspective. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So maybe let's start with some big picture numbers. Where do we stand right now with numbers of reported cases and deaths related to the coronavirus and are infections continuing to spread beyond China? So I just checked before I came into the booth. It looks like there are about 8,200 cases around the world. Most of those are in China, about um, 8,100. And so far, there have been 170 deaths reported. All of those deaths have been in China. None of the 100 or so cases that have been detected in countries outside of China have seen a death yet. So, Helen, you've been reporting on viral outbreaks and public health emergencies like these for years now. So from that veteran perspective, help us understand the seriousness of the coronavirus outbreak, you know, relative to previous outbreaks like SARS or H1N1. Right at this moment, it's really kind of hard to assess how serious this is vis-a-vis those other things. Certainly the case count has surpassed SARS already, which is interesting. The death toll is not higher than SARS at this point. The problem that the world has right now is that it doesn't know how much of this disease we're seeing. The spectrum of of illness with an infectious disease is sort of an iceberg. You see the serious cases because they end up going to hospital for care. That's the tip of the iceberg. But nobody really knows what percentage of cases are underwater and not visible at this time. There is a thought that there might be a lot of mild disease, that for a lot of people who are getting this, this is kind of like a cold, and they're not getting sick enough to go in for care. So the world doesn't know about them. And you know, China really doesn't have the capacity, no one would have the capacity to go looking for people who aren't sick enough to need care at this point. So it may turn out that we're alarmed by what we're seeing, but that the picture would look a lot different if we could pull back and see the whole scenario. Helen, you wrote a story last weekend in which experts raised concerns that containment efforts may no longer be feasible. Can you update us on efforts to identify and and control the spread of the outbreak? So officially, the World Health Organization is still saying that it believes there's a possibility that China can contain this outbreak. As you'll know, they're taking just extraordinary steps, steps that have never been taken before. They're quarantining cities that are home to tens of thousands of people. No one really has a clue how that will play out. But despite that, you know, there have been a number of cases that have come out, and it would be probably foolhardy to think that the hundred or so cases that have been detected represent all of the cases that have actually emerged from China. And if there is a lot of mild disease with this uh, virus, it's quite conceivable that cases are being missed because people just weren't sick enough to come to anybody's attention. The mild portion of this is good news, if it's true, because it means this virus is not as scary as it currently looks, but it makes it much harder to find and contain So on the topic of the WHO, uh, as you mentioned, they have been positive. They've praised the Chinese government's response to this ongoing outbreak. But as we record this podcast, the WHO is meeting again on whether to declare this a global public health emergency. How significant would that declaration be and, and how might it impact the efforts to contain and stop the outbreak? There's been pressure on WHO from outside parties to declare what's called a fake, a public health emergency of international concern. 
Typically what happens when a fake is declared, the director general of the WHO will issue some recommendations to the world. Don't cut off travel to this country. Don't take unnecessary steps to inhibit trade. Effectively, a lot of this is to protect the country that is having the outbreak from being penalized because, you know, the world really needs countries to be forthcoming about infectious disease outbreaks in their countries. And so a lot of the protections in a fake are for countries that are being forthcoming and being good global citizens by declaring that they have an infectious disease outbreak underway. The problem with this is that these are recommendations. And we have seen time and again that countries will ignore these recommendations if they feel it's in the interest of their citizens. So there's a massive scientific effort underway to rapidly develop a vaccine against the coronavirus. Have there been any significant developments on this front since we last spoke? I saw there was an article in the South China Morning Post saying a group in Hong Kong said they felt that they had designed a vaccine. But I mean, this is still all early, early, early days. And the prospect of vaccine for the masses remains a long-term project. So Helen and other stat reporters are staying on top of this rapidly developing story. So we invite you to check out our website for more stories. Helen, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks for having me. months ago, when Senator Elizabeth Warren was considered the Democratic frontrunner, the business world felt attacked. Drug company stocks declined, biotech CEOs complained, and at least one billionaire cried on TV. But now, as we're days away from the Iowa caucuses, Senator Bernie Sanders has taken a stronger position in the polls by running a campaign to Warren's left, and he looks likely to win in Iowa. That DC correspondent Lev Fasher was in Iowa over the weekend, and he joins us now to talk about the changing primary. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. Hi, everybody. So, Lev, for most of this race, Warren and Sanders have been sort of grouped together as the left flank of this candidate pool. How are their approaches to healthcare different? So the short answer is that Bernie Sanders has been consistent and not detailed, and Elizabeth Warren has been detailed and not consistent, which voters clearly seem to mind on Warren's part. Bernie Sanders kind of throughout his career has advocated for Medicare for all, a single payer universal health care system. It's not something Warren has historically supported. It's something she has warmed to in recent years as kind of the, the progressive movement in the United States has made health care a larger and larger priority. But Warren more recently has taken flack first for not specifying her Medicare for all plan, which Bernie Sanders himself hasn't done. And then once she did specify exactly the terms of the plan and how she'd pay for it, she started taking a lot of flack for the immense cost north of $30 trillion over the course of a decade. So you know, it really cuts both ways for for Warren and, and Sanders has been rewarded for consistency really without much nuance. And the opposite has been true for Senator Warren. So, Lev, as for the drug industry, Warren and Sanders have both been sharply critical of pharma. How do their policy approaches differ from each other? The differences are actually pretty fascinating. And I think they can trace back a little to Senator Warren having a big biotech constituency in her state and that not being true for Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is the author of a bill that would enact the Medical Innovation Prize Fund. And it's one of the more 
radical pieces of health legislation really ever introduced in Congress. But because he's Bernie Sanders, because he's seen kind of maybe as more of an activist than a credible lawmaker, it hasn't gotten a ton of attention. But essentially, Bernie Sanders wants to award about $100 billion, I believe, per year to people who were seeking to create you know, new biomedical treatments to people who want to develop drugs and, and devices. And he wants to do it at the expense of drug exclusivity. So instead of allowing venture capital firms to fund biotech companies that develop drugs that pharmaceutical companies later buy, Bernie Sanders essentially wants to take the eventual revenue out of that equation. He wants to just award people tons of money up front. And then he wants the patents and the rights and the exclusivity transferred to the federal government so that essentially people can access those new inventions, those new treatments close to the cost of production. So there is a way in which Bernie Sanders has expressed interest in just kind of eliminating the way we pay for drug development in this country that Senator Warren, she hasn't really gone quite that far. Obviously, she's very critical of the corporations and of drug company profit margins. But there's a way that Sanders has just expressed an interest in blowing up the entire system instead of just sharply dialing back some of the revenue calculations and some of the prices. So Sanders is is much more aggressive. But as I mentioned, he's not really seen as a, a legislator with a track record of getting his bills passed into the law the way Senator Warren is. So, Love, why haven't we seen the same panic among billionaires and Wall Street types uh, that we saw when Warren was the front runner now that Bernie has taken the lead. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Lev, you would think that if Sanders' proposal was enacted or taken seriously, like heads across Kendall Square would be exploding. Yeah, I think, you know, Adam, you used the phrase taken seriously, and I think that's exactly it. Elizabeth Warren, she is a staunch progressive. She has a, a consistent track record in progressive politics over the course of the past decade or two decades. But Bernie Sanders is just not viewed the way she is in terms of someone who is on occasion willing to work with Republicans, willing to compromise, willing to seek kind of incremental change where possible as opposed to consistently advocating for wholesale change regardless of whether it is politically Doable. So I think there's just a, a view in Washington that probably extends to Wall Street and the business community that Elizabeth Warren would have a lot more success enacting many of the policies she's advocating for on the campaign trail, as opposed to Sanders, who's been very consistent to his credit, but who is really a, an activist who happens to be an elected senator. And I think that's the distinction. So as we mentioned, you spent the weekend in Iowa. How is this playing out there, the sort of Sanders-Warren dynamic? What did you hear from voters? You know, the funny thing about the presidential candidates on the campaign trail as it pertains to healthcare and really just as it pertains to drug pricing is that there's not a lot of daylight. The self-styled moderates are just as aggressive on the issue of drug pricing as the self-styled uber progressive. So Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, who's kind of seen as one of the more moderate candidates in the field, she is exactly as aggressive. She talks about taking on big pharma. I wrote a story about how the price of insulin specifically has become a huge campaign trail issue. Amy Klobuchar is kind of leading the charge. She's she's going around Iowa and New Hampshire and other early primary states telling the story of, of Alex Smith, who is a young man who died at age 26 after attempting to ration insulin, one of a number of pretty similarly horrific stories that we've seen 
uh, as a result of the, the cost of accessing insulin in the last couple of years. But candidates really all sound the same on drug pricing, even though they sound very different on the issue of healthcare more broadly. People oppose Medicare for all. People support Medicare for all. People want to enact a public option. But there's really one thing that every Democrat agrees on, insulin specifically, but even broader than that, one way, they say, to make healthcare much more accessible to Americans is to dramatically lower what we pay for drugs. And it's kind of remarkable that, you know, if you stripped someone's voice and and just read the text of their remarks at a campaign event, you wouldn't really be able to tell who it was talking about drug policy because all the candidates are, are really similar in these lanes. So Iowa voters go to the polls next week. Tell us, Love, what's next? What are you going to be watching for on issues concerning the drug industry as the race moves forward? You know, the race in Iowa is is wide open. Similarly, in, in New Hampshire, it's super close. I think it's going to be interesting to see whether candidates start to zoom in a little more on policy or whether people just kind of talk about big pharma and, and Medicare negotiation in the same kind of broad, harsh tone that we've heard so far. So, for example, at the most recent Democratic debate, Wolf Blitzer of CNN, he actually asked a question about Senator Warren's proposal to allow the federal government to manufacture generic drugs. It's the first time that we've seen kind of on a national stage a a pretty specific drug policy question. Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, or the former mayor now, I should say, he talked about uh, implementing a a cap for out-of-pocket expenditures under Medicare Part D, but he also got kind of wonky and talked about the importance of making it a monthly cap as opposed to a yearly cap so people don't have to front load their out-of-pocket drug expenses, you know, every year come January, February. So there's a way that actually candidates have started to see an appeal and getting more detailed about their somewhat wonky drug pricing proposal. And frankly, people just don't get super wonky typically on the campaign trail in early states. So if that's a trend that continues, it would be super fascinating to watch play out. Lev, thanks for joining us. Thank you, everybody. Damien, I feel like among the three of us, you are the cinephile of Read Out Loud. So tell us about this movie thing uh, that we want to talk about. (laughs) I appreciate that. So we learned fairly recently that a studio called 101 Studios is producing a motion picture based on the reporting done at STAT by our former colleague Dave Armstrong about Purdue Pharma and specifically the Sackler family that controls that company. And this is like a feature film, right? Not a documentary. That's right. So I'm cribbing from uh, a story in The Hollywood Reporter at this point, but there's very little public information about how it will play out. But yes, it will be a feature film, presumably featuring an actor playing Dave and definitely one playing Richard Sackler and other Sacklers. And it'll be written and directed by a pair of filmmakers who previously made a movie called Beneath the Harvest Sky, which I think screened at Sundance some number of years ago. So I'm assuming that the three of us will be rolled into a composite character, right? I'm hiring an agent right now. (laughs) So as anyone listening might imagine, you know, us being vain and attention-starved journalists, the news of this movie in production, of course, made us very happy for Dave, our former colleague, and for STAT, the institution that pays us. But then I think the immediate turn in conversation among everyone to whom I've spoken about this is, will any of us be depicted in this fictionalization of our workplace? So I think that Rick Burke, you know, our boss and the executive producer of this podcast, I think Steve Carell could play Rick. That seems like a reasonable casting. I'm also curious to see 
how Stad is represented. You know we're going to get a fictional name. I don't know. The Boston Globe was in Spotlight. Maybe they use Stad. Maybe we don't have to be... Uh, portrayed under a fictitious name. That would be nice. I did want to back up just for a second. Obviously, Steve Carell, uh, wonderful dramatic actor, memorable roles in that wrestling movie uh, and currently on the Apple TV Plus show that I don't know anyone who watches. But Adam, you just suggested that your boss should be played by a guy whose most memorable and best known um, acting portrayal is as a completely hapless, arrogant stupid, frankly, boss in the television series The Office. I just wanted to, to underline that. You know, I've already had my annual performance review, so I feel I feel good about sticking with <laughs> Steve Carell. So one thing, not that these filmmakers need my advice or, or probably uh, anyone's, we're used to the sort of canonical journalism movie where there's like a gruff Ben Bradley-esque editor barking at someone to run the damn story and then we cut to printing presses and and maybe one of those like spinning newspapers that slaps the screen in the face, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem with depicting modern journalism, specifically at a space like Stat, which is a, a digital media enterprise, is that there are no printing presses. And, you know, clicking publish in a content management system might not have the same dramatic flourish. Yeah, they're going to have to really sort of do something to dramatize that. It's it's just not the same as, you know, the trucks, you know, throwing the papers to the newsboy and everyone <laughs> grabbing the newspaper. Like, how do you how do you depict that moment when, you know, little digital bits and bytes kind of go out into the, you know, into the Internet? It's just I don't know. That's going to be tough. Maybe you could film a bunch of Stat Plus subscribers pulling out their smartphones and scrolling through uh, the daily newsletters we put out. Yeah, like alerts dinging everywhere, you know, that might be the way to go. So speaking of self-indulgent journalistic things, we are coming up on our 100th episode of this podcast. And to commemorate the occasion, we want to hear from you, the listener. Here's our phone number, 617-517-6130. Dial us up. And ask us questions about how we put together this podcast on a weekly basis. We'd love to hear from you. We'll use that audio and on the podcast, our 100th episode, and we'll answer your questions. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tepanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and tell us about your favorite journalism movie. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you do like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. Mm-hmm.